Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're focusing on digital assets, ETFs, and the metaverse, sharing with you an insightful discussion from a recent live event held in Vancouver. Vivian Su, Director of Product Innovation, and Megan Chen, Digital Asset Strategist, join host Gord Thompson, VP Regional Sales for Western Canada. Megan shares her thoughts on the metaverse, how these immersive worlds have grown, where it's going, and how it is investable. Megan notes she looks at four key areas of opportunity, digital infrastructure, content, economy, and interface. Aside from gaming and socializing, some other areas of opportunity include remote working, education, and shopping. Vivian details the launch of Fidelity Total Metaverse Index ETF and ETF Fund, as well as the overall Fidelity Canada ETF lineup, including the all-in-one ETF suite. Vivian, Megan, and Gord also discuss ESG trends, regulation in the metaverse and with cryptocurrencies, also cryptocurrency adoption, how Bitcoin may fit into a traditional 60-40 portfolio, and Megan addresses common questions and criticisms. As mentioned, this discussion was recorded at a recent live event. This took place on August 16th in Vancouver, with Vivian and Megan also taking questions from the live audience. A few slides were used for the in-person audience, which obviously we can't see, but we wanted to share this insightful discussion with our podcast audience. To start things off, we'll hear an intro from Dave Bushnell, Senior Vice President, Advisor Distribution. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So we're going to talk about the metaverse. Now I think you'd all agree this is, I find this a very interesting topic. And I think it makes me actually feel quite old. And a story that I was just saying to everyone is I have an eight-year-old daughter. And before I left, she said to me, I said, well, you know, what are you up to tonight, kiddo? And she said, well, Megan is, ironically, we have a Megan. She said, well, Megan's having a party. And I said, oh, well, great. You know, is mom going to drive you? And she looked at me like I had asked the craziest question on the planet. And she said, no, 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 dad. Megan's hosting a party at her Minecraft house. And it's a dress-up party. And we're all meeting there at 7. I I thought when you said you were going to a party, you did it with real people. But what do I know? And this is how a lot of our kids are now interacting with each other. You see that a lot of our favorite retail stores now are selling and open for business in the metaverse. So many, uh, especially musicians, our very own Justin Bieber doing shows in the metaverse. So I think we would all agree that this is definitely not a trend. It's not something that's going away. And it's probably something that's going to evolve into all of our day-to-day lives more and more, especially as the younger generation continues to grow up, who's far more familiar with this tech, these technologies then I'll be the first to admit than I am. So here to walk us through this, we have two wonderful people, very well equipped to talk to us about this. The first is Vivian Sue, Director of Product Innovation, and she's joined by Megan Chen, who is our Digital Asset Strategist. And as always, they'll be hosted by Gord. So this will be a very interesting and futuristic session. So I'll welcome everyone to the stage. 
I'm older than Dave, and I've got a little bit of a different story because I've got older kids, and my experience with this new technology comes usually at two or three in the morning because unlike me who would be coming home uh, when I was my son's age of 17 or something like that, opening the door, coming in from a long evening out, he's actually just in the basement uh, hooting and hollering and screaming with all his friends, but they're not there. They're actually in his headset, uh, and he's talking to them. So I'm guessing he's playing some sort of a game, Fallout or... Minecraft or something along those lines. So I really know nothing about this. So unlike the last couple of themes that we've had, which have been taxes on investments, I'm really looking forward to this session just to learning well, what the heck all this stuff is. So Megan, can we start with you? What is the metaverse? Sure. So uh, the metaverse refers to a network of shared virtual worlds and augmented reality environments. And the idea is that the metaverse could play a major role in our online experiences in the future and make our online experiences more immersive. So today we have uh, virtual world platforms like, like Fortnite, Decentraland, uh, Horizon Worlds, um, but the metaverse is still very much developing and we don't yet know what it will end up looking like in the future or what platforms, if any, will dominate this space. Now we have a slide on the potential investing landscape here. So in terms of the investing landscape, I think about it in four key areas. So the first area is digital infrastructure. So an advanced version of the metaverse may allow for complex real-time interactions between thousands, millions, maybe even billions of people all sharing a single version of a virtual world. And again, the extent of this will depend on the final form of the metaverse. But the idea is that the internet today is not built for such fast twitch real-time interactions amongst many, many people. Uh, most of what we use the internet for today is to send and receive static files. So sending and receiving emails, reading articles on the internet, or streaming YouTube videos or Netflix videos. Um, and so if the metaverse is to scale up in terms of the complexity of interactions, there'll be unprecedented computing power requirements as well as network bandwidth and latency requirements. So companies that develop or are involved in digital infrastructure or computing power could potentially stand to benefit from the rise in the metaverse. So this could include companies like NVIDIA, which makes uh, GPUs, as well as telcos, uh, data center operators, cloud service providers, and so on. So that's the first category. The second category is content. So this includes companies that develop virtual worlds and environments. This could include gaming companies like Activision Blizzard or Nintendo that develop uh, complex virtual worlds and game engines like Unreal or Unity that create the physics and the graphics of these worlds. So today, if you go on platforms like Horizon Worlds or Minecraft or so on, you'll find that everyone kind of looks like a cartoon, um, which is not very photorealistic. And, but the idea is that as the metaverse gets more advanced, people and the environment may become more and more photorealistic going forward. Besides gaming companies, this category could also include companies that are involved in things like 3D space capture and digitization software, 3D space modeling, and so on. Um, and then we have Interface. So these are companies that make VR headsets, AR headsets, just uh, devices that allow people to access the metaverse. And going forward, this category could also potentially include uh, companies that are involved in things like haptic technology, which is technology that allows you to feel what you're interacting with in the metaverse as well as see them. 
And then finally, we have economy. So these are companies that could potentially support the digital economy of the metaverse, including companies like traditional fintech companies um, like Block or PayPal, as well as cryptocurrency companies, since cryptocurrency could become an important payment rail in the metaverse. Okay. A lot that can kind of fall out of this from a standpoint, just the overall experience and investment opportunities. Can you speak to, you know, some of the themes that you can kind of project over the next 12 to 24 months that we may see day to day in our lives? Yeah, I think the metaverse can potentially impact our lives in different areas. So one area besides gaming is working, for example. So, you know, with COVID, we've seen an increase in remote working and the metaverse could facilitate better collaboration between colleagues that are working in a geographically dispersed manner. They could feel like they're working in the same space and collaborate more naturally and more effectively. So that's another area. Online education is also growing and the metaverse could make that more enhanced as well. Um, it could enhance the feeling of people feeling like they're in the same class as one another instead of isolated in their rooms and staring at lectures on their laptop. Another area could be things like online shopping. So users, could, when they shop in the metaverse, could pick up 3D objects, examine them, feel like they're walking around more in a real-world mall instead of browsing on Amazon, for example. Another area could be things like industry. Design, engineering industries could benefit from complex 3D simulations in the metaverse, which is already actually going on in, in smaller, to a smaller extent. So in a way, what we've just gone through in terms of the global pandemic has probably accelerated I think uh, so. all the opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, Vivian, can we check in with you in terms of the, you know, from a standpoint, this is the investment opportunities, investment landscaping, but from a standpoint of what Fidelity has to offer in terms of a product, and specifically on the ETF lineup, what's the interest that you're seeing right now in the metaverse and, for that matter, in digital assets, if we can extend it to that? Yeah, and, and I really think that echoing sort of your point earlier, Gord, the fact that we just went through a pandemic, everyone sort of lived at home for two and a half years, that really sort of sped up the innovation and evolution within sort of the metaverse space and also just technologies in general. And that's why you see that fund companies such as Fidelity are having sort of a, a interest in getting into the digital asset space. But one thing I will know is that these are things that have been in the works for Fidelity already. Um, we didn't sort of just wake up and, and think that we're going to go into the metaverse. We didn't uh, just get into the crypto space as well. So I think in terms of metaverse, it's part of the thematic fund line, line up um, that we're trying to develop. And it still uses, I don't know if anyone from here went to the Boston event, um, Bobby and Kevin from the quant team, they really have developed a proprietary AI model that looks at certain things and picks out, you know, security that fit within that thematic score. And so Metaverse is one of those that we can explore. And this just seems like the right time to get in now because there's been so much de development in terms of software and hardware that this will likely, like Megan said, this is really enhancing uh, how we interact online. And we are already, like my phone constantly tells me how many hours I'm on my phone already. So I think this is only going to increase in the future, but I think in a more realistic way. So all these companies are basically piling money um, into research and development, and we want to be on the front end of that trend um, that's only going to continue moving forward. 
Um, and then with crypto as well, I know we'll get into that a little bit more, um, but crypto is something that Fidelity has been researching and, and you know, we even have uh, our own mining operation since 2014, 2015. So there's history and, and expertise there. And we just um, decided to, to bring that to Canada for our Canadian clients too. Okay, so staying on the right-hand side of this graph under digital assets, we've got the Bitcoin ETF and the metaverse. So, uh, Megan, we'll check in with you. How do the metaverse and crypto interact together? Sure, so cryptocurrencies can be used for payments in the metaverse, but it's more general than that. So metaverse platforms can leverage public blockchains like Ethereum for really a variety of different purposes. So I mentioned uh, Decentraland earlier. And that's a good case study because the Central Land is a virtual world platform that leverages the Ethereum blockchain to keep track of user assets. Um, and so, for example, ownership of pieces of virtual real estate on the Central Land are kept track of as blockchain tokens called NFTs or non-fungible tokens on the Ethereum network. So what this allows is that user assets are actually stored in an open and decentralized way instead of on internalized corporate databases. And so users can freely trade these assets outside of the platform that they are created. And this also allows them to custody their own assets because of the way blockchain works. So besides using Ethereum for user asset ownership, Decentraland also uses Ethereum to run its decentralized governance model. So there is no central entity that makes decisions on the Decentraland platform. Instead, it's all the people who own the platform's tokens on Ethereum that get to make governance proposals and to vote on governance proposals. So Decentraland is a case study of a company that's leveraging the blockchain to decentralize certain functions of their platform. And that's generally what crypto and blockchain can do. They can offer a way to decentralize certain aspects of a platform, to decentralize the system and to make it more open and democratic and transparent. But a full discussion of blockchain is probably beyond the scope of this question. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Vivian, we'll check back in with you. Uh, I noticed in the slide there the all-in-one ETFs. So we just had the asset allocation team up earlier that run FMP. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the all-in-one lineup? Yeah, we, we started those in 2021. Um, sorry, the years are starting to get lost on me since COVID. But we started with two of the four portfolios and then expanded that over time. Um, so I think the, the um, intention is to design something that is simple in terms of structure, um, in terms of recognizing that on the equity side. We're using our factor ETFs, which you had seen on the previous slide before. So all of these factors over long periods of time have proven to add value over the broad market. So we know that you know, those components are great building blocks for the equity side of the portfolios. And then for the fixed income, of course, you guys all know Jeff Moore, Mike Plage. So we have a very deep fixed income expertise at Fidelity as well. So combining those uh, portfolios together to sort of the structure from a 40-60 all the way to 100% equity allocation. And uh, one thing to note that's very different from um, what you may see from our other competitions in the ETF or lower costs um, asset allocation space is that um, we don't charge an asset allocation fee on top. So that's something different than the passive competitions out there. And just to tie in sort of the, the crypto talk, uh, we added uh, Bitcoin, a uh, very small, like one to 3%, as you can see on the slide there, 
um, small allocation to crypto um, just to add a bit more diversification. I think we'll get into that probably a little bit later as well in terms of where Bitcoin sits within the portfolio. But I think we recognize that the traditional 60-40 since beginning of this year has had some challenges. And looking forward, how do you diversify from that, whether it's through liquid alt, you heard from the portfolio managers earlier today, or even crypto, I think that's something um, that we're exploring. So we're adding, uh, we add a very small allocation to um, Bitcoin. And that's something that's uh, really different than all the other competitions out there as well, because we have the expertise there. And when was that that we made that uh, addition of the Bitcoin? Uh, January of this year. Okay. So it's a recent allocation. Okay, excellent. And so for the advisors kind of wondering where this could possibly fit into your practice, what we've seen uh, in terms of this lineup is a lot of advisors, obviously, who have investors that are asking about ETFs are taking a look at this because of the lower cost solution as well. In some cases, especially those ones that are very familiar with FMP, they've been thinking to incorporate this into their discussions with advisors that have kids that are coming of investment age. So anybody that's you know just opening up their first TSFA or RSP, this might be something that resonates with them uh, from a standpoint of the younger generation. So uh, Megan, back to you from a standpoint, just overall, we'll dig into the Bitcoin and just cryptocurrencies in general. Lots of volatility uh, year to date. Can you give us a quick summary of what's happened, why, and where do we go from here? Sure. So year to date, Bitcoin and Ether are both down about 50%. Um, most of that drawdown happened in the second quarter. So if you look at only the first half of the year, Bitcoin was down 60% and Ether was down 70%. So there are two key drivers of this drawdown. One is uh, just macro pressures on risk assets more broadly, driven by high inflation, interest rate hikes, quantitative tightening, and so on. So for reference, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ were down 20 and 30% um, in the first half of the year as well. Now, the second part of it is crypto-specific. So especially in Q2, we saw a slew of negative headlines, notably the collapse of the Terra blockchain in May following the de-pegging of their algorithmic stablecoin UST. And prior to its collapse, Terra was actually one of the largest blockchains by the market cap of its native token. So its collapse really had a major negative impact on crypto prices. And then in June, there were insolvency concerns around multiple crypto platforms like Celsius, Voyager, Three Arrows Capital. You may have heard some of these names in the news. Um, now, there's a lot to unpack um, in terms of what actually happened, and I can get into more detail in the Q&A if anyone's interested. But the key takeaway is that the insolvency problems faced by these crypto companies really come down to the fact that uh, they engaged in risky practices that just didn't... Um, Spent, turn out well in a crypto bear market. And also, cryptocurrency lending companies like Celsius saw increased uh, withdrawals and redemptions in the midst of overall market volatility, and especially since the collapse of the Terra blockchain. And so since uh, these issues came to light in June, many of these companies, um, including Celsius, Voyager, and Three Arrows, uh, have actually filed for bankruptcy, or, and some other platforms like BlockFi have uh, been bailed out by another company. But I would say that to put things in context, uh, these developments are part of the growing pains and natural evolutions of an asset class that's still emerging um, and an industry that's still nascent that's forming around it. And recent events call into question, certainly, the practices of some of these centralized crypto companies in terms of risk management, in terms of transparency. But I, I would say it doesn't call into question the underlying value proposition of blockchain technology. 
And so if we take a long-term view, I think that value proposition of decentralization, openness, transparency, accessibility is still very much intact. Um, so that's to the, that takes us to the end of the first half of the year. Now, since the end of June, there's actually been a rally in crypto prices. So Bitcoin is up over 20%. Ether is actually up over 80% since the end of June. And some of that is definitely due to a broader upturn in markets more generally. Stock markets are up. Um, but I think some of that is also because of the contextualization of some of the events that happened in Q2. And for Ether specifically, uh, there has been some positive sentiment around the Ethereum development roadmap, specifically an event called the Merge, uh, which is slated to happen later this year and marks Ethereum's transition to a proof-of-stake consensus. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm sure you've seen that commercial that's out there that shows uh, a bunch of cave people looking at somebody with a wheel. They're going, oh, it's just a fad. It'll never work. You draw a really good analogy to when the internet first came out to counter the point of people just looking at the cryptocurrency marketplace and saying, it's just a fad. It'll never work. Can you share that with the audience in terms of how uh, you look back historically at when the internet first came out and how it parallels a little bit with the cryptocurrency space? Sure. Um, I think both the metaverse and cryptocurrency has been um, the recipient of a fair amount of criticism around the fact that it's more hype than substance. But I think that is true of a lot of technologies in their nascency, including the internet. You know, in the 90s or the 2000s, a lot of prominent people uh, were predicting that it would fail catastrophically. Um, and, and it didn't. It went on to revolutionize the world. And I think the key here to determine whether it's hyper substance is to really ask yourself, is there a core uh, raison d'etre? You know, is there a reason for its existence? And I think for cryptocurrencies, the answer is yes. Um, never mind, you know, the thousands of coins that are out there. But if you just look at the technology as a whole, it aims the, so the core principle behind crypto and blockchain is decentralization. And it aims to provide an alternative monetary and financial system to our current systems, which are largely based on centralized infrastructure. And so while in Canada, you know, we are fortunate in, this, in the sense that we don't have to worry too much about the stability of our monetary and financial systems generally. But there are people in many parts of the world uh, for whom cryptocurrency can be a lifeline because they cannot trust or rely on their traditional infrastructure or traditional institutions or their government. So I think, you know, if you look at that, you look at the fact that there is a real reason for existence um, and a real value proposition there. I think that's what separates the, the hype from the substance. Okay. And in terms of risk management, uh, Vivian of the ETFs, I saw the range was 1% to 3%. Even if we decided to add to that, what's the maximum we could allocate towards the crypto space? Well, we don't add anything more to the 1% to 3%. So that's the strategic allocation. But because we implement an annual sort of the rebalance, right. so we will let the assets, crypto and, and equities and fixed income, um, all of them ride out the year unless they sort of breach a plus or minus 5% threshold in terms uh, relative to their neutral benchmark. So there are sort of risk management placed in there, whether it's the annual January rebalance or the plus or minus 5% to make sure that you don't deviate too much from the the intended portfolio, the 60, 40, 40, 60, and so on that you purchased into, but then at the same time, allow the underlying assets to ride out its upside before sort of rebalancing it back. Okay. So you'd never see a 20% allocation. No, like it, yeah. it's capped at like yeah. the, I guess for the three person allocation, for example, it's capped at eight. And then yeah. that's when we sort of manually, um, ad hoc rebalance it back to the three, 3%, but otherwise I like, will never go up more than that. 
Okay. Uh, Megan, back to you. Security and regulations are key consideration when it comes to cryptocurrency investing. What makes Fidelity different uh, with our Bitcoin ETF? Sure. So uh, with regards to our Bitcoin ETF, I would say there are two main points to consider. So one is that our fees are amongst the lowest in the market. Our ETF's management fee is 40 basis points, and there's an MER cap of 95 basis points. So that puts us in line with CI as the lowest uh, fee Bitcoin ETF in Canada. So the second point is that uh, we are an in-house end-to-end fidelity solution. So what I mean by that is that the Bitcoin's custodian and sub-custodian are both fidelity entities. So the custodian is, uh, the left-hand side there, is Fidelity Clearing Canada, and they are the first IROC-regulated digital assets custodian in Canada. And on the right-hand side, we have the Bitcoin sub-custodian, which is Fidelity Digital Assets. Um, And Fidelity Digital Assets was launched in 2018, and they are also the custodian of Fidelity's uh, Bitcoin fund in the U.S. for accredited investors. So they already have track record in terms of uh, Bitcoin security and storage. They also have uh, robust controls in terms of cyber controls, operational controls, physical controls um, to keep client Bitcoin safe in terms of physical controls. For example, uh, the storage bunkers are geographically dispersed and there's monitoring on a 24-7 basis by armed guards. And in addition, over 98% of client Bitcoin are actually held offline in something called cold wallets. And the goal of that is to significantly mitigate the risk of these funds being hacked. Got it. Okay. Uh, So not physically cold, obviously. Cold wallets. Yes, it means offline. Yes, cold means offline. As opposed to hot wallets, which means online storage. Okay. Another common concern is the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. Can you address the ESG implications? Sure. So what makes Bitcoin environmentally intensive is something called um, a consensus mechanism. So Bitcoin mining falls under a broader class of consensus mechanisms, and another name for it is called proof of work. Now, there are other consensus mechanisms that actually use a lot less energy. Um, The main alternative is called proof of stake. So earlier I mentioned that Ethereum is moving from proof of work consensus to proof of stake consensus. That's the main reason why. Because upon the transition, Ethereum will be estimated to consume 99.9 less energy so than they currently do. But in terms of just Bitcoin mining, proof-of-work consensus. So proof-of-work consensus is so energy-intensive because it contributes to the security of the Bitcoin network. But to put things in context, it's not a very large percentage, actually. So according to the Bitcoin Mining Council... Bitcoin mining consumes only about 0.2% of world energy production and only 0.1% of uh, global carbon emissions. And actually about 60% of Bitcoin mining is estimated to be driven by sustainable energy sources, which makes it one of the most sustainable industries in the world. And, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we, we have to think about Bitcoin's environmental impact in the context of the social value that Bitcoin provides, as we do with any other industry, all of which is, uh, has some kind of environmental footprint. Okay. Uh, Vivian, the next question here that's popping up, I guess it kind of relates to the bands that we have, the 1% to 3%, but just maybe what am I getting your additional thoughts? What is a Bitcoin ETF? Where does a Bitcoin ETF fit in a client's overall portfolio if people are interested in purchasing it? Yeah, I really think the discussion around where Bitcoin fits, where uh, whether it's supposed to replace your fixed income or equities, I think that discussion is still ongoing um, because uh, Bitcoin prior to this year, I think a lot of people have seen it as a very solid store of value 
And I would say that relative to other cryptocurrencies, it still is because of its hard cap at 21 million coins relative to other sort of more open-ended structures like Ether. And so there's still debate in terms of where that fits. And that's why, and especially with the volatility with cryptocurrencies in general, that's why allocating a very small percentage really makes sense. Uh, Megan, do you want to talk a little bit about the Fidelity Digital Assets? They basically did a um, sort of case study of allocating 1%, 2 3%, what that does to a traditional 60-40. Sure. So, uh, yeah, we found that over the last seven years or so, if uh, an investor had allocated 2% to Bitcoin in a traditional 60-40, the Sharpe ratio would have improved uh, by about 20%. So it turns out that, at least historically, the, the pros of diversification and increased upside returns have outweighed the cons of the higher volatility contribution. Okay, another question coming in from the audience. Kind of rhymes a little bit with sort of the uh, reference to me being skeptical if I was to, to say, what about the, the future, if it's just a fad, but this one just says, what would you say to someone who thinks the metaverse specifically is just a trend? I would say, you know, it comes back to that division between hype and substance. Is there a reason for existence for it? And I think that, you know, Vivian mentioned this earlier as well. We already spend so much of our time online today. Most of us spend, say, over eight hours online per day, whether it be for working or for entertainment. And it's most conservative level. All the metaverse is trying to do is to make our online experiences more immersive. And I think there is real value there. And as I mentioned earlier, there are potential practical use cases across working, whether it be online education, um, online shopping, uh, for industrial reasons, if you know engineers want to model 3D simulations and so on. So given the practical use cases of the metaverse, I would say it's more than just a trend. Although I will say as well that we are still very far from having a full-fledged advanced version of the metaverse, and we're still in the very early days of this technology. So okay. it, it remains to be seen where I'll go. And question for either or both of you, have you attended a meeting virtually with an avatar? I haven't. I haven't either. I just wonder. I think I'm, I'm waiting for Fidelity to, to yeah. do a Fidelity-branded goggle, and yeah. then I'll jump on board. Okay. Yeah, I have, I have been um, in Horizon Worlds, yeah. but just not as part of a Fidelity meeting. Cool. I've got an avatar for the golf game I play with my son, and I look a lot like Dustin Johnson, but I just can't seem to play like him in real life. So I kind of like that aspect of the metaverse. Uh, With ESG emerging as such a strong trend in investing, how is Fidelity positioning its overall ETF lineup? Yeah, we currently have one, I guess, what you would characterize as a true sort of ESG fund. So there's a sustainable world ETF that basically looks at the best-in-class ESG securities. So best-in-class meaning that we're not negatively screening out oil and gas companies. Um, However, it's selecting the best-in-class companies within various different sectors and and through a multi-factor model that selects, you know, position sizing within the ACQUI universe. And so there's currently only one, but if you think about outside of you know, the vehicle ETF or or mutual funds. Fidelity is looking at sustainable investing seriously. I think we've always been, uh, you know, we recognize that we're stewards of of investor money. Governance has always been key in terms of our fundamental analysis of the companies that we meet with and invest with. But I think people uh, tend to sort of, when we talk about ESG, 
climate um, and environmental tends to be top of mind for people. And uh, regardless of you know the focus on E, I think that's all integrated into our fundamental analysis. So all of our actively managed um, strategies, our portfolio managers, when we meet with companies, ESG is a topic for discussion, and we also have dedicated resources of um, sustainable investing teams that can help inform our fundamental analysts as well as PMs in terms of what issues um, they want to discuss within the uh, within the certain sectors or the industries of the companies that they're meeting with. So there's a lot of, I guess, background or fundamental work that's being done in when it relates to ESG. But it's just on the surface, you know, you might only see one ETF. And of course, on the mutual fund side, we got Hugo's climate leadership, the balance and the bond versions, um, as well as women's leadership with Nicole Connolly. So there are, you know, a handful of ESG funds within the Fidelity lineup. But I think that area is still growing and we're seeing a lot more institutional interest at this point in time. And I know from a, a media standpoint, there's a lot of um, noise around ESG, especially climate, of course. But in terms of investment opportunities so far from what we've seen, it's mainly institutional clients that are allocating assets. And then on the retail side, we're starting to see clients asking more questions about it, too. Okay. Uh, Megan, you want to... Uh tackle the next one that's coming in here online from advisors, and that is Bitcoin has been seen as a storage of wealth, but has shown, obviously, a correlation to equities. Thoughts on that? Yeah, so certainly, um, especially since the start of 2022, the correlation between Bitcoin and risk assets has gone way up. Um, so I think it's about 60% now. Um, where, and so this definitely goes against the narrative of Bitcoin as a store of value, right? And I would say that uh, the narrative of Bitcoin as a store of value is still very much emerging. Bitcoin has been seen as a potential store of value that may potentially one day replace gold in investor portfolios because, and, and th there are good reasons for this, Bitcoin does demonstrate certain characteristics that make it a good store of value candidate. So, for example, there's a large network that's backing it. Um, it has a very strong track record of security. It's, the network's never been hacked since inception. Uh, it has a strict monetary policy. So the issuance of Bitcoin is com completely algorithmically determined. There is no central bank that can arbitrarily print an arbitrary amount of money at any given moment. And there's furthermore uh, a hard cap to the supply of Bitcoin of 21 million coins that we will achieve um, on an algorithmic schedule um, in the year 2140. And so compared to gold, you know, what are Bitcoin's advantages? And I would say three key things. One is that Bitcoin is much easier to transfer and store and to just verify. So gold, if, if we think about the developing country use case there, um, where Bitcoin is largely used, to keep custody of gold yourself and to carry it around in a time of, say, war, that's not very convenient. Whereas Bitcoin is provides a lot more convenience for people in those situations. So that's benefit one. The second benefit is that Bitcoin forms a global and transparent monetary system, whereas gold does not. And thirdly, Bitcoin integrates into the broader blockchain ecosystem. So as the broader blockchain ecosystem gains in popularity and usage, there could be embedded upside there for Bitcoin as well. Okay, uh, next question that's come in is, given the uncertainty of the future of the metaverse itself, how are companies chosen in the ETF to capture the growth in this theme? 
Um, maybe I'll start, and, and Megan, you could you could finish up. So sure. I talked a little bit about this proprietary um, AI model. So it's with our quantitative team in Boston, where they've developed this model, and and quant investing really for Fidelity goes back decades. Um, we've been using quantitative research to support our fundamental analysts and, and PMs in terms of finding certain sort of numeric metrics. Um, to categorize securities and sort of to shortlist securities for analysts to, to further look into. And so really this model has been sort of tried over a number of years and we, um, the same team that designed our factor ETFs also designed uh, this quantitative model that looks at various different metrics, whether how much revenue is generated from any sort of the, the four pillars that Megan talked about a little bit earlier when it relates to metaverse. Um, we go through companies' uh, revenue calls um, and scrub through their transcripts and see how many times keywords pop up that's related to the metaverse theme. And then uh, overall put a portfolio together, still allocating sort of risk control in terms of per stock sort of the cap in terms of allocation and then put that together in a portfolio. So when we think about thematic investing, this model that we've developed is not really just meant for metaverse. Um, it can really apply to various different themes out there, but metaverse is probably one of the more developed themes. If you want to think about it that way, like Megan talked about it already, we've lived through COVID. Everyone's been online for um, so much for two and a half years, even sort of drawing on the underlying sort of software technology. Even just think about Home Depot, like you could go on their website, you could take a picture of your living room through sort of um, augmented reality. You could think about, you know, your paint color. You could think about how to place your furniture. So that's all part of the sort of software development that's necessary in order to have that realization of that future state metaverse. Um, and so the development and the infrastructure has uh, sort of already been uh, worked on. And so I think there's more probably use cases than, than we think of when you just think about the, the, the keyword metaverse. But there's so much sort of development software and hardware that's already been going on for a number of years. Okay. Uh, this is a question uh, that I thought uh, I hadn't thought of, which is confirming it's a really good one. In terms of the government uh, regulation that's out there, even central banks, they can't be fans of this on the Bitcoin side of things. Is that true? You know, that, that is a, bit, the, a very popular opinion. And I think to a certain extent it is true. And what's interesting about regulation is that uh, it's kind of going against a little bit the philosophy of blockchain, which is meant to be decentralized and governmentless. But I think that in, uh, if the regulation is right and appropriate, it can actually encourage adoption in the space by institutions, by retail investors alike. Not everyone is going to set up a full Bitcoin note themselves and run them, run, run all the technology themselves. So if there is uh, regulation there that helps guide investors and to make it easier for investors to access, um, I think all the better. Now, regulation is a double-edged sword, of course. Regulation, if it's friendly to crypto, can certainly you know, increase the adoption of crypto. Regulation can also be unfriendly, as we've seen in some countries like China that have outright banned cryptocurrency. So it remains to be seen. Um, you know, it depends jurisdiction by jurisdiction what governments are going to do. 
But going back to the idea that governments, because you know Bitcoin is philosophically decentralized, that they are just going to immediately dislike it. I, I don't think that's necessarily true because I don't think of it as a zero-sum game. You know, it's not a fixed pie. Cryptocurrencies can create industries. They can create businesses. It has already created uh, industries and businesses that never existed before, and it can do that uh, as well going forward. And so I think going forward, we'll probably see more of a coexistence of these two systems, as both centralized and decentralized, and that companies, centralized companies, can use uh, blockchain to decentralize certain functions of their business. And so I think overall, it, it's not a zero-sum game. So governments have some incentive to try and regulate the space in a friendly way. Okay. Uh, Vindy, maybe we can kind of finish off this session just by giving a quick update on the overall ETF lineup and Fidelity and how it fits in and competes in the overall ETF industry, which continues to grow. Uh, but when you look at inflows on a month-to-month basis, it's really the big three that are kind of dominating RBCI shares, BMO, and Vanguard. Uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the way we positioned our suite of ETFs and the growth that we expect to get uh, out of the business. Yeah, that, that's a great way to end. Um, so we certainly, uh, at Fidelity, we entered the ETF market in 2018. We weren't the first to market. There's already a lot of competition there. There's a lot of passive investments out there already. And passive investments, I think it's a great investment tool, but that's never been sort of the value add for Fidelity. So we, uh, before we came to market, we wanted to make sure that we could find something that's true to our investment DNA in terms of how we describe our value add and, and to our investors. And so we started with the factor investments. We've seen that clients are using our factor ETFs to tilt or modify their existing portfolios, of course, like value dividend have been extremely popular over the past year. And then nowadays we're starting to see the assets switch into quality low vol, um, which means that, you know, it's great to have a lineup, a full lineup of factors to make sure, you know, client can switch in and out depending on their own situation. And um, we continue to develop more strategy, whether it's the digital asset space, or we do recognize that there are still a lot of gaps that we need to fill within our ETF lineup. Um, so I think in terms of the future development of ETFs, I think more and more clients are open to using ETFs. I think more people are getting more comfortable with trading ETFs. That will propel sort of the growth of the overall market. And I think as more firms like Fidelity enter the market and bring more differentiated solution outside of passive ETFs and bring more choice. Um, I think then vehicle, I guess the discussion around vehicle will probably go away in the future. It's more so, you know, what you're comfortable with, what your clients want in terms of vehicle, but then the investment choices uh, are all, all there. Okay. Thank you both. Uh, for the advisors, obviously, if you need more insight, feel free to contact uh, your wholesaling team to get more insight into any of the topics we covered because they can tap into Megan and Vivian's time as well and make it available to you in terms of getting further insight into this growing and obviously interesting uh, market. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.